Did you know that kinky wellness is integral to your self-development? Hi, my name is Dana Shrigal. I'm a kinky wellness coach and owner of The Partition, home of kinky wellness. Each Monday, I bring on a guest to discuss why kinky sexual wellness deserves a seat in the wellness conversation. You can catch my solo shows on Wednesdays, but let's jump into it. Hey, and welcome back and happy new year. I hope you had a great first day of the new year. I know I'm excited and I'm excited to kick off 2024 by welcoming back our friend Ancilla of Ancillary Kink Support. Ancilla is a sex and kink educator, journalist, author, and so much more, and was previously on the show to talk about her class, Deconstructing and Uncovering Your Sexual Self Through Microscopic Study, which you can find in episode 97. However, in this episode, Ancilla is back to teach her class on sexual communication practices for better sexual engagement. From defining sexual communication to goals and hurdles of it and practices to help, this episode is loaded with amazing knowledge and insight. So let's start 2024 off with a bang and welcome back, Ancilla. Welcome back to the show, Ancilla. Happy New Year's. And how are you doing today? Happy New Year to you as well. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm excited to start the new year with sexual communication because I think that is a great way to start. And because today we're going to be talking about sexual communication practices for better sexual engagement. I'm really excited to be talking about sexual communication on the first day of the year. Although I feel like I do that every year. Every year. Just by accident. I think it actually should be intentional. Maybe it's a good time to kind of Look at your partner or yourself and be like, okay, what are the new goals for this year? Oh, I'm not I'm not a fan of setting goals in terms of dates. Uh, I'm so irritated by New Year's resolutions that I always <laughs> start like new workouts two weeks before the new year, just because I want to be deliberately contrarian. I'm the exact opposite. I'm all about the New Year's, but I actually, my birthday... And I guess actually my husband and I turned our anniversary into our new years. It's kind of like, that's the day that we look at what our goals are together. And we're like, okay, we're going to do it on these days. So November is a big month for us. That's cool. My husband and I forget our anniversary annually. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, today we're going to be talking about sexual communication. So why don't we start with how would you define sexual communication for your perspective? Okay, so very simply, obviously, it's communication geared towards your sexuality and sex life. But to take it apart, two terms, communication and sexual. So communication obviously refers to more than just talking to each other. It's about the sum total of messaging that's coming from me to you, being absorbed by you through the messaging systems that I'm sending, like verbal, nonverbal, what you know about me, my life experience, and also being absorbed by you through the lenses that you have. Therefore, not all communication is necessarily effective or good, which is where the term sexual sort of comes in. So sexual defines what is the goal of this communication. And within it, for each person, I guess you have to see what are your sexual goals or your sexual goals with regard to another person. And therefore, sexual communication would be communication that pertains to your sex life or your sexuality that meets its goals. Absolutely. And I like that you mentioned, it's just not just communication, it is goals. It's like, how are we going to do this? I think people don't add that, or they might not think it's that big of a deal when they're talking about sex. I mean, I suppose it's also, we don't understand communication very well. We love to use the term very often. But one of the primary components of communication is clarity, right? 
So mm. how do you ascertain clarity if you don't know what exactly you're being clear to the goal of? Yeah. So what would be some examples of goals that you could do through sexual communication? First of all, obviously, the goals are different for all people, but there are some general goals that I define, for instance, maximizing the pleasure of all parties involved. That's one of the goals that you want to achieve. Then there's enabling the pleasure of discovery, which is, you know, we don't always have to communicate to the end of, can I get this through you? Can I get that through you? It's also to the goal of finding out things about each other and enjoying the process of discovery is really important to that. Then, of course, there's the part of communication that deals with ensuring safety for everybody and security and making sure everyone's limits are protected. That's another one of the goals that's important. Then uh, reactions are a very big part of it. Uh, understanding your reactions, the other person's reactions to different kinds of stimulus or what may or may not happen or how you react to your environments. And then there's uncovering your sexual subconscious, which uh, sometimes the term sounds a bit new agey, I guess. But uh, what I really mean is like within your sexuality, there are all these different elements that communicating with another person and structuring how you're talking about it can really help you discover. And then, of course, you want to enrich your experience, your sexual experience with yourself, with the other person, uh, discover what you're into, what you're not into. And then ultimately, when you continue to communicate with the same person over and over again, you develop like a language that's unique to you. And that, I suppose, is like the ultimate goal to me is developing a unique language and system of communication with each partner, each person. Uh, whoever you're engaging with. Obviously, in short-term relationships, sometimes this is uh, not as easy to do. But in longer-term relationships, that tends to be the goal for me. Absolutely. And I think that's good because it becomes almost special and unique to whatever partner. I guess also, as human beings, we just really enjoy specificity, I believe. I mean, that's the case also with like music, right? You respond most to music that's really that evokes something really specific in you. So when you communicate with people and you know that this language is truly unique to you, you know that this person understands you at, at a very deep, like a very granular level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, when I took your class, you went into the differences between communication and negotiation, which I absolutely love with the goal, scope and use. And would you be able to explain right. that in this today? Of course. Uh, so first of all, the term negotiation, I think perhaps it's more used within like kink circles than it is in the general sexual lingo. So usually when we negotiate, it's to the goal of, well, what are we going to do with each other? What are the limits of this process? How are we going to accomplish this? And how are we going to make sure everyone remains safe? So in terms of purpose, negotiation is very goal oriented. It's very like, I want to accomplish this, this scene with you, this play with you, perhaps this dynamic with you. How do we do that? Whereas communication is very knowledge oriented. You can, share things that may not have a purpose and you don't have to necessarily get everything out of them. And sometimes it's not pertinent in the moment, but it it informs the patterns and fabric of communication that forms between you. So in terms of goal, that's how it differs to me. Uh, Also in terms of purpose, that's how it differs to me. Then I guess negotiation is sometimes limited uh, by, well, what are we going to do with each other? Like you negotiate with a person Uh, to the end of uh, what exactly is going to transpire between us. Whereas um, to me, communication is more about, well, discovering how our sexuality functions the way that it does, which informs, well, it informs less of what we can and cannot do and more of what we can and cannot enjoy about each other. Then there's the scope. While negotiation is a very vital part of communication, I believe, it's it's very important to the process of like sexual engagement. 
especially because it's so focused on like safety and limits. But communication is more like pervasive. It subsumes negotiation under an umbrella. And uh, that way you're always negotiating, but you're also like doing more than that. You're developing data points of reference that you can keep coming back to and developing narratives from that point onwards. So I guess I tend to view communication as an umbrella and negotiation as a part of it. And then how do you use it? Uh, I guess for me, negotiation is vital to establish consent, to establish limits, to establish safety. Uh, and I guess I view also its primary goal is to ensure no, nobody is violated. Whereas with communication, I guess my goal is to establish clarity as well as security and to understand how your systems of sexuality function with one another and to alter them as it goes, goes forward. And alteration is important to altering the process of negotiation as well. So communication helps you get to places where you're like, okay, this used to be different and now it feels a little different. Perhaps we need to renegotiate the terms of this engagement. So I guess those are the differences that I see between those two processes. And you definitely need both because if it's just a, if it's only negotiation, you almost lose that personal ability to be like, okay, I'm an individual. Like you can have more fun too, but it kind of intertwines with each other. Absolutely. I guess a lot of people also view negotiation as a fun process, which is a great thing as well. Uh, but uh, the, the purpose of differentiating between them is really not to create a negotiation versus communication scenario. It's more about, well, these are perhaps distinct entities and one may subsume the other, but one is maybe not exhaustive. Mm-hmm. And both of those elements definitely help with the hurdles of sexual communication because there's quite a few of them. And one of the first ones, obviously, is lack of mind reading. I do think that people automatically assume like maybe they thought they said something, maybe they didn't, but we could definitely go into the hurdles of sexual communication. Yeah, I guess there are. Well, there are a lot of hurdles to good communication in general, but when it comes to sexuality, there are so many layers that those hurdles become really confusing to take apart. So the lack of mind reading, to me, it's sort of primary when it comes to, especially like kink settings, I guess, but maybe my uh, sexual experience is also sequestered into that area. So I view everything slightly in kink terms, maybe. But okay, so the lack of mind reading is really about this idea that like your partner will figure you out, that there will be like this, transcendent moment where like they just know everything about you and our discomfort with clear, like we have discomfort with clearly stating things that we need often because you cannot share information that you do not have so if you haven't asked yourself those questions you cannot answer them when they are asked of you so often it's because of that but there are several other reasons that factor into it like obviously there is how the social script how it informs your sexuality is really important here like for instance I'm a woman and I'm a woman who grew up in India. So a lot of my sexual education, not the one that I was given in a classroom or by my parents, but the one, the kind that you absorb through society was telling me that don't be overly eager for sexual activity. Don't state too openly that that's what you desire. And sometimes that means that you you internalize this repression, this like idea that good communication in this case means don't be too stating too overtly because it's going to send some messages about you. And often you're not wrong about that. There are people who do get those messages when all you're trying to do is being honest and just being open about what it is that you want. So it's not an un- understandable problem. It's a very, um, it's something that will happen na- naturally in a place where rape culture dictates so much of the social sexual script. Uh, so sometimes it's that, that's what factors into making you less open 
and then there's like um, you know there's this thing where you don't want to take ownership of your actions where you're like i want to do it but i also don't want to seem like i want to do it so if i just insinuate or if i just make it your idea instead or i try to gently nudge you towards something then i won't quite be responsible and then when i enjoy it it can just be like this thing you helped me discover or this thing thing that you got me to but it wasn't like my idea right so sometimes it's that and then of course there's the extremely noxious idea that well when you're really in love with someone or you're truly compatible or you're really connected to someone they will just know this is very common i guess in king circles what i was talking about earlier is that people think that the perfect top or the perfect dominant is the person who just knows they just know what you need and everything that's and it's like this very romanticized idea of what what compatibility means whereas i mean look i understand familiarity with your partner is a very beautiful stage of existence where like you can actually predict their actions but to get to that you need really exhaustive methods of communication the process is really important and if you get there without process that's not a miracle that's just you wishfully wanting to be in that space and i guess the the final reason is uh, it's a personality trait some people are just shy they're just bashful they don't want to talk and in that case i always recommend just just write it down yeah and you know to your point about this concept that people just know like they should just know you that's definitely i feel like uh looking back and reflecting on it the media and like the movies that we i've watched it's very much like they it is like they just know they they kind of anticipate what you need next and then we are like oh that's just how it's supposed to be yeah but then that so easily turns into like a toxic nightmare because <laughs> the first five times they've just anticipated something based on common sense and general social protocol and then they start informing what you need by telling you that's mm. what you need and it's not really about well do i really need that or is it just because you've created this idea in my head that you know what i need yeah that's a, that's very true that's very true now one of the other major hurdles is the emotions for sexual communication right you know i, I actually had a talk with my therapist about whether those states of being are all emotions or not i made a little note when i was preparing these classes about well are these emotions never mind we call them states of being or emotions because the opinion was divided there so we always think that lack of trust or a lack of poor communication is what's going to lead to like poor sexual engagement but those things are really difficult to deduce in the moment in the moment the things that are going to stand in your way are often much more specific to each person but they also come from a different category of states of being or emotions so i've identified three there are many other states but these are just to like give an idea uh, so the first one is uh, irritation so there are a lot of things that your mind is willing to suspend when you're engaging sexually but being irritated is not one of those things that it doesn't go away irritation is not i'm unhappy today it's more like my foot is itching mm. or this room is too warm or i am sweating right now and those things they sort of become the filter through which you'll view the sexual encounter so if you're in the woods and you're trying to have sex and there are bugs everywhere you may be really into each other but you're going to remember the bugs mm-hmm. so irritation is one of those things that you should circumvent at all costs and also if it involves you having to take a moment stop and deal with the problem 
And honestly, to me, even to the point where if the problem cannot be solved, we just postpone this. I'd really rather do that than just like deal with it in an irritated state of being. I sometimes compare it to a browser hijacker where like it's going to hijack what you're feeling and what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish. And then it's the only thing you'll be able to focus on. So, okay, that's irritation. And then there's confusion. So confusion is the main thing you're trying to mitigate via communication is what I was saying earlier is that clarity is perhaps the number one goal of good communication. So when you're confused about what you can or cannot do, it sort of splits the narrative in your head. The moment you reach a point where there is a vital question that is unanswered about what you may do or how it may be re uh, received, it leaves a lot of space for confusion. Like the moment you're like, can I do this or can I not do this? Should I check or should I not check? Now you have like all of these options that are created in your head. And then you keep going down that path and there are more questions and you no longer know what's okay and what's not okay. And also it's very important to remember that that does not mean you renegotiate terms mid-play. That's not what I'm referring to at all. But sometimes uh, you sense a gap in your communication uh, when you're doing things and you realize I should have checked about that. A good moment to check about that is any moment where it occurs to you to check about that. At any moment when you experience confusion, ask the question or avoid doing the thing that led to confusion about whether you can or cannot do it. And then finally, there's bravado, which I like to think of it as a naturally synthesized but artificially infused dose of confidence. You know, bravado is that thing. It's that thing that you do where lots of people are standing by a cliff and somebody's like, I would jump, I would jump, I'm so brave, I would jump. It's that unnecessary sort of, because the goal, it's different from confidence in the sense that confidence is sort of, natural to people and it's also take it or leave it when it comes to sexuality right it's like some people are confident and some people are not it's like it's fine whereas bravado is a bit put on its goal is to specifically not send a message you don't want to seem like i'm not cool enough i'm not brave enough and especially when you're doing things like pain play or impact play or your masochist or status you feel like it's very important sometimes to set this tone that you are uh, you're unbeatable, you're extremely scary. So you put on these acts that may not come naturally to you. Enjoying an act is fine. Like everybody enjoys putting on a scary costume from a, t a time to time. Enjoying it is different from feeling like you have to do it. Otherwise you won't feel good about yourself. And bravado comes from that place where like it, it's born out of an insecurity. Mm. And it often leads you to unsafe spaces is what I think. It, it leads you to spaces where you don't want to do the thing, but you do it because you're worried about how you look if you don't do it. Absolutely. Now, before we get to the next hurdle, I just want to make a reference to what you've said about with the irritations, like stop and postpone if it's something that you can't fix in the moment. And I think that more people need to get comfortable with even that concept that you don't need to just force yourself to go through this or like, oh, like we made this deal or we made this thing. We have to do it because I said so. Like if it, if it doesn't play out or if there's too many things going wrong or if you just don't feel like it, you yeah, you can just stop and be like, no, I don't want to have sex in the woods with all these bugs. This is just not going to be good for me. Yeah, I guess the general commoditization of sex has sort of made our entire view about sex very opportunity based. So when you think of each encounter as like an opportunity, then it's very difficult to step out of it because you're like, well, I've lost that opportunity. And then you're viewing it in terms of like this value that you've lost. It's like, um, it's sort of, yeah, it's commoditization. It's That's what it is. And I guess 
some people are raised in environments or in ways that they are taught that this option won't won't come very often for you so if you if you get it you should take it sometimes this happens with men a lot i guess where it's like well this is your only chance and if you let it go then you won't be able to do it again or like um, and then that makes you carry on with things that you you don't really want to be doing in the moment yeah yeah and that's heavy too like because we i i totally agree with this like lost opportunity feeling that we get which is kind of a shame because it's not like that at all but we have been in grade like you'll lose it you'll lose it like and then you'll feel bad and someone might judge you because you let that moment slip on by yeah it's exactly that Absolutely. So the next one of the hurdles is actually for serving the fantasy. Right. So, well, we all have very active, I guess, I'm assuming we all have it, but perhaps not. We have very active fantasy lives or ideas of what we'd like in our sexual life. And even if you're very experienced or even if you've done a lot of things, when it comes to like the next person, the next thing, the next option, you have a lot of time to develop a fantasy because you have well first of all you are your primary sexual relationship so all of fantasy comes from your sexual relationship with yourself whereas in reality when you're engaging with another person their reactions and the entirety of their sexual reality is also interacting with what you're doing and sometimes when you're really focused on the fantasy and making sure it happens this way and this way and this way because that's the only way it'll it'll be good for you then you discount the other person first of all and then when it it's not achieved then you feel really terrible about yourself or about what's happening with you so we are somewhat conditioned to serve the fantasy because the fantasy develop, develops before the reality it's like it's the first idea we have about things so if you want to do something with another person at first you'll think about how it will be and that's your primary idea so when the other person becomes introduced into the situation then it's difficult to like it's difficult to let go of that fantasy so how seriously do you want to take the fantasy and how how much do you want to adhere to it is an important question to ask and also there are hurdles to serving the fantasy and like things that come out of it that are not really great for like your relationship or your sexual communication with another person for example you may have dissatisfaction with your partner because they're not serving you the fantasy and they may have no idea that what's causing the dissatisfaction is that you're not serving the fantasy and then when you're not able to communicate that to them because you may not even realize what you're really doing is trying to get them to live up to this ideal idea in your head then it'll cause problems between you because they will think that they did something wrong you will maybe even believe they did something wrong and then i guess there's the idea that sex once it starts communication stops i guess the idea of safe the concept of safe words sort of promotes this a little bit again just to disclaim though i'm not dissing safe words i think they are great but sometimes uh, when we don't think about it deeply enough we we don't realize that your safe word is intended to make things come to a hard stop so that if you need to like pull an emergency exit that's what it's there for or to indicate that you need to slow this down or that maybe even to indicate that everything's good but the existence of safe words doesn't mean all your other words do not exist mm. so if there are other things you need to say you should just say them in the moment and sometimes we don't say them because it'll like ruin the flow like you know there's this idea of the flow right it's part of a fantastical idea as well at least in my view of it it's like we think everything's just going to naturally like 
like a river, like the way it does in movies or in music videos. And honestly, I'm not saying that doesn't happen also because sometimes you do get into a flow state when it comes to sexual encounters. But that also doesn't just happen. It happens after a period of time. So like it happens after you've thoroughly deconstructed the fantasy, adapted it into reality, done it a few times maybe, and then you you naturally get to a place where you'll be in a flow state. So like if you're doing something new, for example, whenever my partner and I do something new, we are very exhaustive about like, communicating how we're what's happening it's sometimes disruptive but then the next 40 times we are able to achieve the flow state more easily i also to your uh, point then, sorry uh, also to your point i'm gonna say we have this concept that it needs to be perfect at all times it just can't go wrong like we don't almost leave rooms for these like little errors or just moments of communication like we just are like no it just has to go off like this isn't a play to someone there isn't like I don't know like it's I feel like that's kind of the perspective or kind of energy that I get from it sometimes too when people run into these uh like serving the fantasies that it has to go perfectly I think you're right about that I I guess it's also because there is a performative aspect to sex and how performative is a question that each person has to answer individually and sometimes it's like performative enough that you can't break you know you can't and I guess we have this fear of like losing the moment mm. where like, uh, you know, if, if we interrupt it with something, it'll just be lost, And like, uh, which I don't find to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, we feel like we'll lose it, but there's, we forget that we are also given the option option to build it back up. Like we can pause and then re kind of put that back on the gear and being like, okay, let's build it back up. I don't know. We get into this like, oh, it's, it's the moment's lost. I can't ever get it back. But it's like, no, you can just pause, say what you need to say, and then kind of go back to it and rework it back up. Also, the pause itself is a moment as well, right? Like, okay, when you're in a sexual state, perhaps you're very focused on your pleasure or you're focused on connection or intimacy. However, when you take a pause to communicate something that you really needed to say, that's a moment that's a win for your communication style. So like, it's not unnecessary. It's also not building back. It's just, you're just serving a different goal for that moment. And that, that's all right. That's, it's still a win, honestly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So the last one in serving the fantasy is being sexually pedantic. Now, I don't want to point at people, but it's like very often to set dominance that have this problem where like, they're like, okay, I want these 11 things, but I can give you 10. So that one thing that I can't give you is all that matters. And your entire pleasure then hinges on the one thing you cannot get. I mean, if you want to do that and your partners are fine with it, it's really none of my business. But I find, because people's partners talk to me, that they do have many problems with it that they don't discuss with their dominant partners often because they're like, I have to be, well, again, it's about perfection, but it's also about being made to feel like their entire pleasure hinges on the one thing that you cannot do, you cannot give, you won't push boundaries. And sometimes it, it's just so easy to take advantage of people through this route. It's so easy to coerce consent using this, this idea that like, you have to be my submissive this way. And these are the 12 components that go into it. And if you don't give me one, then you're failing entirely. And I guess that's what I mean by sexually pedantic. Absolutely. Now for the next one, it's outsourcing self-awareness to your partner. And I think this is kind of ties in to a little bit of like, they'll get it or they'll understand. 
Yeah, it's. I guess it's the counterpart to that thing that we were talking about where we want the person to just know, but also as the person who's being known, sometimes also we want, oh, just tell me. If, if you know, you just tell me. Or like, I'm with you now, so you must be involved in my discovery, so why don't you just give me the answer? You should know the answer already. I mean, very often, when I used to watch my parents fight with each other, their fights were always based on well, don't you know this already? Why don't you know this about me already? And it's like, but at no point did you mention it to each other. This was a problem. You just expected them to like pick up on it. So it's it's sort of that thing where like you expect the other person to know on your behalf, which is, it doesn't always work out so great. Like it's sort of nice when people predict your actions and circumvent issues that they think that you may have had, but it's still nice when they do that, even if you've told them. So I, I guess telling is important to me. And I guess there's this thing uh, with uh, being known that we find uh, extremely romantic. Again, I guess this ties into what I was saying earlier is that we, we feel like if the other person figures us out, then we are, we've been cracked and now we'll finally know ourselves. And it's mm. like uh, circumventing the process of self-discovery. Uh, although I will say that with each partner, with each new person, with each phase in your life you will be aided by people in discovering things about yourself that will happen because we interact with other people and sometimes that's going to bring something up but the process of like getting from oh that's what happened that's how I reacted I wonder what that means for me that's that's gotta be you you've gotta you gotta do the work on that because no one else is gonna figure you out and if they do you may someday realize they did it wrong and then what does that mean for the relationship? Absolutely. And I think that it's easy for us to be like, oh, we'll always find it outside because here in the West, it's not very much encouraged for us to like look inwardly. It's we're based on, you know, what we can produce, what we do outside our interactions with other people. So I do think that there is a fair amount of people that someone might say something about them and then they're like, oh, I must be like that. Yeah, you're right. I, I think that that's common. I'm not sure it's just a West thing. I yeah. mean, maybe we have more cultural introspection, but we also have more like, like our, our primary social environments, familial, encourage us to look inwards to find mistakes. So the way in which we look inwards is often like, well, what's wrong with me? Let me go in and find out. But this is not like, this is devoid of wrong or right. It's just about, well, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so the next one is failure to identify the nature of your emotional mechanism. I can really complicate a title, I realize. So <laughs> I like it, you know, <laughs> it's I, I like it. Okay, so we all have emotional mechanisms that are not great, or sometimes just antithetical to good communication. Sometimes they're just they're not all things that are wrong with us. They're just like, sometimes we don't know what is going into us not communicating well. So I divided these into three. There are obviously many different systems of classification, but mine was based on emotional repression, reservation, and dishonesty. So emotional repression comes, I think, from a place where you've been traumatized, maybe, for being emotionally expressive. And it's a method for you to safeguard yourself. And therefore, when you identify situations where you may be victimized again, or you may be in a space where you don't feel safe speaking up, 
So you just repress what it is that you want to say because that's the method that you've been taught or you've taught yourself to keep yourself safe. So emotional repression is often about ensuring your safety and you're not speaking up because you have enough evidence that speaking up is not the right decision and it may lead to you being in an uncomfortable state or you were just taught as perhaps as a kid that uh, speaking up is dangerous or it's a bad thing to do when you come out of a space of emotional depression and when you communicate something and you feel attacked for example or you feel like you're being shut down your reactions can be disproportionate to what the other person said to you and sometimes you don't know your triggers and there may be some really specific ones so you don't know why you're reacting that way and neither does your partner a good way to circumvent emotional depression is to actively create safe spaces for yourself and be able to identify that these are things that i respond to uh, in this manner because they've been repressed in the past which is different from emotional reservation which is the category in which i put myself it's not that i have a trauma associated with speaking out it's not that speaking out makes me un- feel unsafe it's that uh, i just like to work things out privately until i'm ready to talk about it hmm. so if i receive big news or if i'm going through something that i don't yet know how i feel about the process of communicating about it just then is muddling to me so i can't actually do it but unless i tell the other person that that's the case they may think i'm coming out of a repressed state or they may think that i have other emotional reasons for not speaking up but there aren't there often aren't any and sometimes then what happens is that they start trying to get the information out of you because they feel like that's the right thing to do it's not but for any malintent it's just because they feel like you're holding something back perhaps even to protect them but that's a different thing whereas reservation is just about i mean and for me it's about the fact that i'm still working through stuff for some people it could just be a personality trait or they just are just private they don't like to share those parts of themselves easily and that's not always equal to repression so sometimes communicating that also means that your partner knows to respect the limits of your communication because it's not that there are things you don't want to talk about it's that there are times when you're not ready or that's not the right time for you or you're not in the right emotional space and being able to tell people that it's it's really empowering and it's also really great when space is made for that and finally there's emotional dishonesty which is deliberate malintent and the desire to deceive and miscommunicate it's not something that happens where like uh you chose uh, by accident to protect yourself to give information that may be harmful to another person you gave them information that you knew to be false mm. or you knew would mislead them and you did it through to the end of a goal that was not known to them like it was a goal that served you so you just told them a story because you didn't want to deal or you didn't and sometimes people who are emotionally dishonest will like presented like i was doing it to protect you but in that they they made the decision about what your protection entails and maybe it's well intentioned sometimes in some scenarios but in my experience in most cases when you're being emotionally dishonest the person you're protecting is you but you're not protecting yourself from something that makes you feel unsafe you're protecting yourself from something that you just don't want to deal with or you just you know there's like a lack of intent there's like a lack of accountability there like just no like i'm just going to put this under the rug and make up some fabricated story exactly and it's like and also when you find out uh, that somebody was dishonest with you and you don't know the intention of their lie 
then it opens up this gamut of possibilities instead of like oh you lied for this reason it's like maybe you lied for this reason maybe you lied for that reason maybe you lied for that reason and anyone who's supposed predisposed to anxiety will have equal virulent reactions to all of those possibilities and they will worry consistently about all of them so it's just not very compassionate to people like to be dishonest like that i mean it's okay to say i don't want to share that and i think people need to also realize that that's an option just to say i don't want to share that but i think people maybe it's just how i feel like even when i it's just this i have to say something i have to say something in this moment but it's you don't actually have to say something if you don't want to i mean it's also and this is based on personal experience i am as i said i'm reserved in terms of talking about things and until i met my current well i met my husband there wasn't a lot of space for that in relationships people think you're hiding something when you don't want to talk about it or they think there are some heavy emotional motivations to why you're not saying something so they tend to like make a whole deal out of it like why won't you tell me why won't you talk to me you know like it's just this wrongness of your emotional reaction which i guess happens to neurodivergent people a lot also it's like i'm not doing this to you i'm doing this because this is who i am but because social conventions of communication have taught you that silence always is a bad thing you need to draw it out of me but uh, being in a relationship where people were actually able to make space for me to not say anything and just we can just go about our lives it doesn't have to be the thing that hangs between us all the time uh, and that's been really amazing well that's quite beautiful it is yeah that's exciting and it's true because i think that there's always this concept that the person that's quieter needs to change more than the person that's more louder i guess a little bit there's this sense of like no you have to speak more talk more share more like you have to give more instead of the person that's always sharing always they can draw back and just listen or just you know be like they trust that the other person knows how to take care of themselves to some degree you know that's a very good point I never thought about it but yeah that's a really good point. Yeah we do have this expectation that the person who's quieter or just like reserved is obviously like wrong somewhere like there's always yeah. something wrong that's holding them back that's the reason and if you just fix that problem then they'll be fixed. Well I and think I Sorry I was going to say I think that's cuz I was the person that was the loud one that I would go up to people and I realized that I would try to draw things out of people not realizing that it's actually me who needs to take a step back and just let people be like be chill and when I saw that I was like oh shit and it changed and it helped a lot of relationship problems that I was having even with my friends because I was like I don't have to be so on top of everybody all the time but yeah I definitely think that it's something that is at least in my environment it was kind of a pushed on like you have to draw it out of them you this is you helping them you're helping them because i really believed i was helping them but i realized no some people are just quiet <laughs> i believe that you believe that you were helping them yeah <laughs> because I, I, actually i'm not a quiet person i'm just a private person mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. it comes to stuff that i'm working through i'll tell you in a year or two but for now i got to work through it and i just don't need the noise yeah it's not productive to me and that's just what it is it's not that i don't want to hear your opinion it's just that we're not at the opinion stage yet yes 
And that's the thing. There's stages to it. Like people forget, like in some stages take longer than others. And it's just up to the individual. Yeah, that's exactly it. Wonderful. Well, now we've got through like the hurdles of what we have and like those were really well laid out and I absolutely love them. So now we have the practices to help those type of things when we move forward. Yes, we can start with the practices. The first one is called body mapping. I keep crediting myself with coming up for it, though I didn't check whether anyone else ever did. Maybe people have talked about it before. Okay, so it's a, it's a bit of a difficult concept to grasp, but I'm going to try to be comprehensive. So we often communicate what we want sexually in extremely binary terms. Like I like this. I don't like this. This is good. This is bad. I want this. I don't want this. It's very this or that. And how that translates into our negotiation processes or our communication processes that we talk about things in terms of likes and limits. Body mapping is about talking about things in terms of reactions instead. So we have sexual memory, which is mental, and we have sexual memory, which is physical. But as human beings, our most powerful memories are emotional. So our sexual emotional memory is also located in our body in ways that are really specific sometimes. So the example that I always use to explain this to people is that, well, there's a spot on my back at which somebody once hit me uh, when I wasn't expecting it. And it wasn't during play or anything. And it really set off like this assault trigger in me. So I turned around and tried to push them off me. Now I'm really into stingy pain when it comes to like the back of my body. And this is a very small area. So you're gonna hit it at some point. And even if I draw like circle around it, just to indicate that this is, you know, this is like a limit, don't go here. The chances of like you accomplishing that require a really high level of skill, almost an unfair level of skill, honestly. It's a very, very small area. So when you hit it inevitably, it's gonna change my mood. Mm -hmm. It's gonna change how I'm reacting to the pain. And when you sense a change in my reaction, you will think, well, is something wrong or what happened? Or you may not even know that there is a, there's something to discuss there. But if you know exactly why I am reacting the way that I'm reacting, you understand my body much better. So as my partner, you understand my body much better. But as the person that I am, I know how to explain my body much better as well. Because there are like these little coordinates all over you that are not likes, they're not limits. They just govern how you are reacting to things. And sometimes they're like interspersed with things you like. And they also like the narrative about them continues to change, right? Like as you build a relationship with your body and as it changes, as you get older, as you have more sexual influences, the story associated with those parts of your body is also going to keep changing places that were once sort of fraught with maybe a history may become erogenous and and knowing all of those things will help you as my partner and me as myself understand my reactions better and if I keep like updating this information about myself then I don't have to every single time dig back I have like this composite of information which is like really comprehensive and it's not to say that you don't need to talk about your likes and limits this is in addition to, not instead of. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that I guess people should keep in mind when they're approaching this is that, well, the, one of the things I already said was that it's not going to happen in a day. Like, it's not something, like, I'm not going to wake up today and be like, 
well, here's a picture of the human anatomy. Let me mark what's going on. Although yeah. it's a fun activity. I have done it. So I, I don't not recommend it. I just not don't recommend thinking of it as like comprehensive and done at that moment. Yeah. So as you keep having new experiences, you're going to keep adding new memories to your body. So you got to keep updating it. And also just be open to the fact that it's not static. Like it's not today this, so always this. You know, this is this idea a lot of people have. And this is unrelated to sexuality, honestly. It's, it's mostly to do with like our granddads who are like, well, I've been this person for 50 years, so it's too late to change now. I mean, you can replace that 50 years with basically any timeline and people use it for everything. It's not like that. Just just change. It's fine. Everything's going to be okay. It's important to remember what the goal is with you creating this map of your body. One of the goals is, well, you want to know yourself, right? Like you want to know the minutiae of you because you're all you've got ultimately. Like mm-hmm. this relationship warrants deep commitment and development because you're interesting to you. Everyone's interesting. But if you do the work to find out what's interesting about you, you're going to enjoy yourself more. It's also the goal is to understand your reactions and to be able to communicate your reactions better to people. The more information you have, the more information you can share. Uh, And also, I already said that you use it uh, in addition to negotiation and limits, not in replacement of it. And I guess one of the things that's really important to me personally is like, I like to draw maps to like, um, you know, my formative sexual memories and then how they've evolved over the years with different experiences and also like influences from society and how my politics have evolved. Then when I'm telling someone that I want you to whip me on my back, I'm not telling you what you're doing to me. I'm going to simultaneously tell you everything that that means to me. And when you do that to me, you're going to experience it in terms of everything that it means to me as well and everything that it means to you. And that's just a much richer narrative than just, well, hit me because it feels good. Hit me because it feels good is great. I'm not I'm not like dissing hit me because it feels good, but it's just it's just amazing to have like this rich tapestry to just play around in. Well, I think it's good to have those layers as well, like because it is. And I love your point about having like the relationship with yourself, because this is something that we should be doing. And I think this is a very practical thing that people should kind of do. And again, not that it's going to be done in a day, but really go through all parts of your body, even like your hands, your fingertips, the palms, tops of them, and just work through section by section and just take a minute to pause and just think about it for a moment. Cause sometimes life is so busy that we just run through life and we don't take that moment to kind of check in on every part of our body. Yeah. I guess while we hear a lot about having a relationship with yourself, developing a relationship with yourself, it sort of really formulates the way you're told to do it. Mostly it's in women's magazines. It's like mm. take yourself out to lunch or like do yoga, but like, okay, those are activities, but tell me like instead what it is that like the process of getting to know myself, give me more detailed information about a framework that I may follow. Don't tell me to go to lunch with myself. Like, okay, that's fine. I'll go to lunch with myself. I have lunch by myself every day. (laughs) Uh, But it's not necessarily something that's helping. If at lunch, all you're thinking about is, it would be nice to be here with another person. Just get to know yourself. Well, that's what I was going to say. Sometimes people will go like, oh, I did this, so I must feel better. Like, just, it doesn't work like that either. Because like, 
you're just doing an activity. And sometimes people do those activities just to stay busy, just so they don't have to get to know themselves. I think you're right. Also, I do understand, honestly, I have a hard time assessing my emotions, for instance, and other people's emotional intentions. And if somebody just told me this is the answer, I would I would jump at it immediately. So I can see how if somebody tells you, if you do this, you'll get to know yourself, you'd be like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I'll do it. It's understandable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do think that it's still nice to go out and do these activities by yourself. You should be able to like build up the courage to go do these things by yourself. Like don't not go out for lunch if you don't have somebody, but in the same breath, don't use it as a like, oh, well, I'm doing this activity constantly. I'm constantly busy. So there is a line in between. I, I do know. I do agree with what you're saying. It, I'm not, not to say don't go out to lunch with yourself. It's more like, well, know why you're going out to lunch with yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next one that we have is the creation of not today spaces, which I absolutely love. And it kind of references the, even what we said earlier, like you can just say no, like not, eh, not feeling it or the environment isn't what I thought it was going to be like. Yeah. So the reason I, I brought that up and why I use the term not today spaces, because, well, you know, what happens is like this, and this happens a lot in relationships as opposed to perhaps more short term sexual encounters or uh, encounters you have with people you develop a language of saying no, which sometimes becomes interspersed with the language of rejection. You know, when you say, uh, again, I'm going to talk about my mother. Uh, My friends keep making fun of me for talking about my mother so much during sex ed classes because they're like, well, is it sex ed or do you just want to talk about your mom? (laughs) Uh, But I've learned a lot of stuff because of her. So my mom will have a headache, right? And when she has a headache, she says she has a headache. But when she's upset, she also says she has a headache. So now when she says she has a headache, I have to do a lot of math on, well, what is it that you mean? Mm. And sometimes we turn down sexual activity with our long-term partners by saying things like, well, I have a headache. I'm just tired. Oh, okay. I'm just tired is actually fine. But uh, if you just want to just chill and not not engage and you just want to say that, I just don't want to have sex or I just don't want to play today. You should be able to say that and have that be received at face value, not as a rejection. So you can't just institute a not today space without working on your general communication practices. It's sort of the point. It's like if you have let it get to a place where all of your communications with each other have gotten to the point where what you're saying can be interpreted four or five different ways then you are not actually in the place where you can create a not today space because when you say not today, is your partner perceiving that you're not in the mood or are they perceiving you want something else or are they perceiving you're not interested in them? So all of that, just by instituting a not today space, you're not going to get rid of that. But Mm. in the absence of all of that, a not today space works really well because then you're able to say no. And it's just, it doesn't have a thousand meanings associated with this. And the fact that there are a thousand meanings that do get associated with the word no is really detrimental to consent culture. It's like it reinforces this message that no doesn't always mean no. Sometimes it means that she's upset with me. I said she because um, I'm always thinking of coercive partners as being men and the recipient of these women. I know that's not the truth, but it's just so prevalent. So uh, when it comes to not today's spaces, I do want to be really clear that like just saying to each other that 
hey, if I say uh, not today, that's what I mean, uh, even though in all of our history, we haven't indicated any intention to clearly communicate with each other. Uh, it may not work as well as you want it to work because you've let your communication get to a point where you're interpreting each other's words for messages that are hidden all the time. So you're going to have to start at scratch at like truth telling at a really molecular level. And that's a very valid point. Like no, because sometimes no can be like, I'm tired. I don't feel like it or I'm not in the mood or like maybe you pissed me off earlier and now I just don't like, I don't feel it. Maybe I had a hard day at work. And so, yeah, there is a lot of ways that it can be interpreted, but yeah, to, you just have to open communication. Just say it. It's really uncomfortable. This, You know, so sometimes there are like more parties that get da- damaged by this than you realize. Like sometimes you have this kind of communication style between each other where like you express, you withhold or express yourself sexually because of how you feel about the relationship. So you may tell your partner that like, no, I'm not interested because you're upset with something that they did. They understand it to mean that you're upset with X, Y, Z thing. And they say you're poly in the setup, right? And then there's a third person involved and they interpret your unwillingness to communicate with them or engage with them as a reaction to their other partner. And Mm. they take that to mean that they should get rid of their other partner. And that's the only way to repair the relationship between you two. And then you've like damaged another person in this process because of your lack of clear communication with each other. The inability to say no, to interpret no, to be able to understand all of this surrounding no has hurt another person. And and now the way that you're having relationships is such a fucking mess. Valid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the next one is indulging the emotion urge to pee, which I actually think is hilarious and so freaking true. Like it's one of those things, like it's so obvious, <laughs> but yet some people like just don't do it. Like again, fear of ruining the mood, but it's something that it, one of those irritations, it's not going to go away and you have to do it. Yeah. A lot of people don't do it. And honestly, I've been there. I've been in that place where I'm like, just don't say it, just deal with it. I mean, the emotional urge to pee is about, you know, actually I read this in the first Cosmo article I ever read in my life where they were like, uh, if you really have to pee, just go pee. Don't do it on a full bladder just because you don't want to disrupt the moment. And I was like, wow, good sex tips are coming from a strange source because they always have like the exact same ones. Anyway, that's what I first heard. Like this, this possibility was first presented to me. And then I became like hyper vigilant of it. So then I always had to pee right before I was going to engage sexually because it became ingrained so early in my head. But for me, it's not actually peeing. It's like I sometimes need to make jokes. Like sometimes it'll occur to me in the moment that sometimes it's a very serious moment. And hmm. the joke is too good that I just I just have to. <laughs> if I don't do it, it'll be in my head forever. And That's it's awesome. not like I'm not being a clown. It's not co- it's not constantly comical. Sometimes it's topical. Sometimes it's just if I let this moment pass, this joke will lose its value forever. So I just have to say it. Well, and for I- other people, it can be other things. Like it can be your emotional urge to pee can be about anything. But just bring it up. Just just get it out. Yeah, just get it off your chest. And it's, it's funny with Cosmo point because I remember. One of the first I brought Cosmo home and my aunt was there and she just like tore me apart in a funny way because one of the 
advice that it was given was walk like you have an orange between your legs so you could swing your hips farther and stuff. And my aunt just was like, stop reading this shit. Like she took an orange and she was like kind of mocking it the whole time. But that was kind of like a joke that we had. And I think it always resonated with me. And I just realized like Cosmo's not good. And that was like way back, you know, when I was still a teenager, but you, you know, sometimes it says good things, but you got to watch because sometimes at those magazines, they say they're just, it's kind of garbage. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to tell, you know, sometimes they do have pertinent things inside them, but I also feel like they're constantly playing catch up, right? Like, especially mm. today, there's so much, there's so much discussion and discourse that's so advanced. And two years later, they'll be talking about things that were like done to death two years ago sometimes. <laughs> and I don't mean Cosmos specifically. I mean, a lot of these like general sex ed magazines. That's true. That's true. So moving to the next one is a space to discuss sexuality and dynamic that isn't sexual. And I think that this is a key component just in your relationship in general, because you don't want to focus too much on just the sexual side, because we all have you know, multifaceted personalities, interests, all these type of dynamics that we do need spaces to hold for all of these things, especially like other forms of creativity. Oh, yeah, you're right. It it does play into creativity a lot. Uh, well, actually, what it is, is that, well, we discuss sex a lot with our partners sometimes, but a lot of it is done within sexual settings, like, you know, sexting mm-hmm. or dirty talk. But there's a lot to sexual relations, and this is kink or non-kink or whatever, that's pertinent, interesting, multifactorial, and could benefit from some analysis. So why not have a space where you can truly take your sexual dynamic apart? And for creative reasons as well, because it's so much fun to do that, because you were there, it's personal to you, and it it's just, why would you not want to get to know yourself and the other person as in this way, you know, it just enables so much. For me, like, for example, like, I'll say this of power exchange relationships, for instance, since a lot of your communication happens in what one could easily view as an unequal power structure, for me, it really helps to have a space where those conventions of power do not really apply. Hmm. And I personally like to do this when I'm in my home office, because I am very assured in that space. I am in control in that space. It's uh, my domain, you know, like, uh, and then that corrects for the inherent power imbalance. And it also puts me in a particular space of mind. Like when I'm there, I'm at my most analytical, productive. I want to organize data and, and then it enables me to view us as data, which is really fucking fun to do with another person. And then they bring their data to the table and like, you can see how your data is interacting with the other person's data. Not everybody has to do it in the same space. It also doesn't necessarily have to be a literal physical space, though I do recommend it because it's good for the story, if no other reason. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just all about balance, too. I think people need to really understand that there needs to be balance, too. Also, aid it. Like, uh, if you're not discussing actively everything that you're doing actively, then at some point, what you're doing is going to become so divorced from what you understand that your own relationship may stop making sense to you because you're like, well, that's when we last checked in and that's where it was at. And now we're doing a whole other thing. And sometimes like people will have ideas about their relationships that's like, oh, we're really happy together or we're really uh, sexually compatible. 
even though that's not being indicated by the things that they are doing together the things that they're feeling for each other but the last time they checked in they agreed that that was the case so then they're just sticking with that mm. now your next point is micro engagement and can you just define what that is just before we get into micro engagement so i can't just do definitions i have to do pre definition first okay uh, <laughs> which is why does the need for that definition arise so a question that comes up very often from people is not a question more like a complaint is that they're not having sex often enough with their partners and in that it becomes really difficult to define well what do you consider sex hmm. uh, what has to happen for you to think that sex has happened as much as we all love to talk about divorcing our understanding of sex from piv and like heteronormative ideas of sexuality we keep coming back to it ourselves in that we define it as well it didn't come to a completion of thought sometimes it's penetration sometimes it's orgasm sometimes it's like a whole production that has to happen for you to consider that you've had sex but when it keeps coming back to piv you're like well we are doing that often enough but it doesn't feel like we're having a lot of sex so what's really missing there what's really missing is like you consistently engaging with one another sexually you engaging in like smaller ways through time as opposed to you know through performances through acts through incidents now obviously this is not possible in every relationship it's also not possible for all people and some people may genuinely actually prefer the incident based style of engagement but for me i find i'm way more sexually satisfied when we continue to be sexual towards each other bring things up touch in some ways flirt insinuate and this is incorporated really specifically based on how you engage with each other sexually right like what you do in your sexual relationship will inform it like for instance for me if we just are like 2 minutes and you choke me that's extremely hot way hotter than if we had penetrative intercourse like yeah so it's that it's that consistent it also informs the other person that you're like well i'm continuing to think about you i'm continuing to desire you i want to do this stuff with you plus it's fun it's like fun to go through your day with just sort of like a sexual tinge and i think that's what it is you got to build it up too i think that there are a lot of opportunities to build that sexual tension and just be flirtatious and everyone likes that like everyone likes the little flirty comments like it gives you, you know a little blush to the cheeks and you just get all giddy a little bit and it brings on that like fun positive energy and especially if you're having a bad day and someone says like you know you look hot or there's like a flirty message that you get it's going to brighten your day also over time it's going to develop into a pretty substantial narrative like you may start with uh, you look hot today or just pull your hair a little but eventually when the sexual dynamic between you is evolved enough or developed enough that there's so much stuff it's going to be really specific the way you micro engage with each other it's going to really indicate well this is what i'm feeling it's about this in specific it's it's just a lot of personal intimacy that you share consistently and i think a lot of times also this also seems to happen a lot in like ds relationships where You know you have a list of tasks and you have like rules and you have like play but you don't feel it you don't feel the thing you don't feel the connection mm. and what's often really missing is that narrative that like that just just the enjoyment of checking in with each other this way or performing these things to each other 
sort of spontaneously, just like as a regular part of your day. It's just fun. It's like snacking instead of eating. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I like it. Instead of like a grand meal, and there's a lot of people that like little snacks throughout the whole day instead of just eating a whole large meal. So this could be the same thing. Do both. Yeah. When it comes to love and sexuality, I'm extremely pro-decadence. It just seems to be, it seems to me that those are the spheres where it makes most sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely well these were all great practices to help with communication and really the last one is just debugging your communication practices which are just some tips and practical ways that people can help themselves right so also uh debugging communication practices is not about solving your relationship problems it's about solving the problems of communication that may arise between you mm-hmm. so uh, there are practices that are more specific to communication as opposed to if this happens do this so one of them is uh, well postulate scenarios to mitigate confusion which is how do you decide what's pertinent to another person to tell them how do you know what to share how do you know what well what not to share doesn't really figure in my life but maybe it doesn't yours so you got to postulate scenarios like, okay, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if that happens? What information becomes pertinent because of these scenarios that you've postulated? And which one, which kind of information are you often not giving the other person? It'll help you determine where the gaps are in your communication. Then there is identifying breakdowns of communication in the moment that they happen. And then taking note of the emotion you manifest in response to the breakdown of communication so that you know what happened and what it caused for you. And then you can like identify what caused the breakdown and also whether you are eager to avoid it and to what degree and how serious it is. Because sometimes there's a breakdown of communication, but your reaction is not very strong. Your reaction is not very strong. So you're like, "Ah, how does it matter? But then it happens again and again and again Mm. and again. And then your reaction is no longer about the incident. It's about the pattern. And then your reaction will be a lot stronger. And then you'll do that thing where you're like, it happened then, it also happened then. And then when you bring it up in the moment, you'll be like, you did it that day. You also did it that day. You also did it that day. And then when you're talking to the other person, it feels like, okay, why are you piling on to me? If I was doing this, why didn't you point it out to me? So take note of what you're reacting to and how you're reacting. And then factor both of those things into fixing the breakdown of communication that that is happening. The next one is following productive paths of reasoning as opposed to finding different paths to come to the same conclusion over and over again. So I think this is very common. I don't like the term overthinking, but this is how I define it. Overthinking is when you're coming to the same conclusion over and over again, you're just taking different routes to get there. Mm. So once you've identified the problem, like, and you know what the problem is, solutions are a good path. Or trying to understand why it is a problem is a good part. But if you're uh, routinely just coming to the same conclusion, like this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason, you're not getting anywhere with solving the, the actual communication problem. You're just proving to yourself that, well, either I was right, or this is definitely bad, or I definitely don't like this. Or just sometimes it just becomes fun to like feed the the insecurity the frenzy the anxiety like it just becomes fun to like to overthink I guess then there is a focusing on responsibility as opposed to placing blame so really quickly the way I do responsibility and blame is responsibility is for me to take for my actions 
blame is for me to give to your actions. Obviously, in an ideal scenario, both parties would focus on responsibility and then there would be no need for blame. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is ideal and very rarely the case, but you could work on making it the case. And then that way, when you have a breakdown of communication, each party can just look at their behavior and bring what they see to the table. Not that you cannot evaluate the other person's behavior, but like blame usually shuts down communication. Look, also, it's really important that I qualify that sometimes blame is necessary because people are violating you. Mm. Sometimes blame is about the fact that they've transcended your boundaries. They've done something that is unconscionable. They've, they're deliberately being predatory. In those situations, absolutely do not apply any communication practices. Just run. So please take all of this information with the understanding that this is in relationships where there is no nefarious or malintent and all parties want to be in the relationship of their own will. And in those scenarios, blame can be a bit counterproductive. I can see how it happens, especially when you notice patterns of people not taking responsibility for their actions. Then there is being proactive in predicting issues that may arise from patterns that you notice. So you are going to notice communication patterns with yourselves. Like, for example, if you have a tendency to close up in emotional response to something particular, you know that it's going to happen repeatedly. You don't have to disrupt all your patterns or become perfect. But when you know that you have a pattern, communicate the pattern. That way, it's not going to cause a breakdown of communication. Your partner will still know where you're coming from, what's going on with you. They'll just know that okay, you're not really in the place to be able to give the correct information at this moment. Then there is working backwards from action to goal and to determine whether the goal you're working on is the one you jointly decided to work on. Let me just explain this a little bit, I guess. So often when something, when there's a breakdown, you can start tracing back from that point to, well, what was the goal of what it is that we were trying to accomplish? And at some point, you'll be able to identify at what point you diverged from the goal and went in a different direction. That point is where like the issue lies, right? So you go back to that point and you see what caused you to, to diverge from the goal and then mitigate that issue. Otherwise, you'll try, you, may, you may be trying to solve a problem that's not actually the problem. So working backwards is really helpful for me. Then there is reconciling the use of terminology. So a lot of times we think that finding the word for something is like finding the answer, except it's not. Terminology has its use. It does help you talk about things in a more structured way. Sometimes it helps you identify a certain way. And sometimes it's about representation. But terminology in itself is not the goal. It's the starting point. Because a lot of times I see people moving in this direction, sort of inductive, like, we know all this and now we've narrowed it down to a term. Whereas the way you should be working is sort of deductive. It's like, I know this term and I'm working outwards from it. This is what it means to me. This is what I mean when I say this. Uh, really clarifying what you mean by which term and how it's pertinent to what you're discussing. It's really good. Using terminology that way is really good. Whereas using it in the way that you're like, using it as the answer, it's not really going to take you anywhere past that point. The answer is never one word. It's always 10,000 words. The question can sometimes be one word. So terminology is a good way to inform questions. Not always the best way to inform solutions. Not for me anyway. So start with terminology and persist. So often the diagnostic properties that you seek to solve an issue reside within the answer to the question why. 
so why the issue why now why why this emotion why this problem why this response why this reaction why this breakdown all of those answers will probably give you a ton of information as to why as to what has happened so why is the best question you can be asking and if you're in a situation where you believe that the problem is that you don't know what to say you may wish to dig deeper because most of the time when we when we don't know what to say it's like about the emotional reason why you're not saying it it's like you're anticipating a reaction or you're anticipating feeling a certain way because you said it so it's really not about what you're not saying it's about what's the emotional barrier that's standing in the way of communicating well and when you are at that moment where you're like i shouldn't say that or do i say that why are you not saying it what are you scared is going to happen what's motivating you not saying it that'll help you determine when are the times you should be speaking up and also the times you should be speaking less that's very true Wow. So the, this, I love having you on the show. Honestly, you are packed with so much information. This was a great conversation. No, this was such a good conversation. And I'm so glad that we're kicking off the new year this way. But is there anything that you would want our listeners to really, really understand regarding sexual communication just right before we leave? Please have fun with it. Don't do it as a task. Don't be like, this is the means to me getting more sexual partners don't do it because you're trying to hack a system do it because it's truly really the most fun you can have with another person like love is a feeling but it's also a process and communication is a really amazing part of the process it's like uh, yeah the sexual engagement is fun and uh, far be it for me to diss it at all i'm really into it but uh, communicating is also it's as fun it's like writing out loud it's it's like writing your own story out loud constantly absolutely absolutely well thank you so much for being on the show and is there anything that's next for you or where can my listeners find you what's next for me i guess i'm doing a lot more events now in india in person teaching and workshops and i'm hoping to start doing them in like colleges and universities because i feel like that's where a lot of the information is needed and we've got to just stop pretending that young people don't have sex or don't think about it and give them the tools to really think about it like so much that it feels like homework like that's that's what's next for me you can find me on my website that's ancillarykink.com also on instagram at ancillarykinksupport and on fetlife if you're on there i write there and on my patreon where you can support my work and access all the stuff that i do that's all the places where you can find me so my house but i'm not telling you where i live <laughs> absolutely well thank you again for coming on the show and for my listeners i well i will put all the links in the description as usual but for my listeners you guys know what to do and stay kinky